Thank you, Janet. If you would turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 8. This morning we're looking at verses 26 through 40 together. I'll remind you of the thesis of the Acts of the Apostles, kind of the, the summary verse of the entire book. It's found back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. This is right before the Lord Jesus ascends to the Father in glory. He's speaking to His disciples and He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Those are the last words He speaks. And over the last seven and a half chapters, we've seen this happen in real time. We've seen the witness in Jerusalem. We've seen those apostles and believers brought before the Sanhedrin, and we've seen them threatened and beaten and imprisoned. We've seen Stephen martyred. We've seen this witness in Judea, this area encompassing Jerusalem and south of Jerusalem, and we're going to see much more of that, by the way. We've seen the witness to Samaria, that Philip goes to the Samaritans and he preaches Christ and the apostles even come from Jerusalem and lay their hands on the Samaritans and impart the Holy Spirit. We've seen all of that. What about that last part to the end of the earth? Now we're obviously going to see much more of this as Paul goes on his missionary journeys, but today... We're given a a foretaste of the gospel going out to the end of the earth. Now, we may not think of first century Ethiopia, what would be for us modern day Sudan. We might not think of that as the end of the earth. But in Philip's day, in the time of the early church, it was way out there. And the person we're going to meet today is a man who is one of the most unexpected people to encounter the gospel. One of the most unlikeliest of persons to be changed. But he will be changed and he will return to his homeland and be the first believer that I'm aware of on the continent of Africa. Now, there will be many more great ones to follow. Believers like Cyprian, Tertullian, Augustine, and Athanasius. But we're seeing this command from the Lord Jesus come to fruition. The gospel going forth to the ends of the earth. And while that's the general overarching theme, there's one particular theme today that I'm going to hone in on. Here is a man from Ethiopia who is seeking God. I guess it would be possible for me to direct your eyes to him and say, look at this man, look at his faith stepping out and making this journey and going to worship God in Jerusalem. Look at his commitment and his dedication to the word of God. He buys a scroll of Isaiah and he's studying it. Be more like this man. That's not the main point of this text. 
Here is a man who is seeking God and he's going to Jerusalem to worship and he buys a scroll of Isaiah and he's reading it and trying to understand the words. But why is he doing that? Is he just a spiritually godly minded person by nature? Is he seeking God because he's just a higher quality person? He's just holier than you and I. He is seeking God. This is the main point. Because God was first seeking him. I think this is going to be made obvious. You have this eunuch, this royal treasurer, seeking God because God first sought him. There's a hymn we sang a couple weeks ago. It's been just stuck in my head for the past four months. It's how, how sweet and awful is the place. And there's this line where the hymn writer is, is uh, thinking about the heavenly banquet that, that he's going to be a part of. He's saying, Lord, I, I did nothing to earn my invitation. And there are, there are thousands who would rather starve than come to this banquet and feast with you. Why on earth would it be me? And then he goes on to say that the same love that spreads the feast and the same love that sets the table is the same love that sweetly drew us in. And if he had not done that, we would still refuse to taste and would perish in our sin. That's what's going on here. God was seeking him. God was preparing him. God is driving a steamroller, making straight the path, getting everything in order so that this African might be brought to faith in his son, Jesus Christ. We're going to see that together. But before we do, let's pray. Father, would you bless this preaching of your word? Would we see your sovereign hand of grace, preparing the way for your people, drawing them like water out of a well to yourself. Would we see that and would we see the obedience and, and uh, sensitivity to the spirit that Philip has? And Lord, would we pray for that same sensitivity in our hearts as well? Father, be with us during this time. Bless your people in the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read our text, Acts, 26, Acts 8, beginning in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. 
Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, there is something unique about this passage. Up to this point in the book of Acts, we've seen numerous events of large numbers of people coming to faith in Jesus. On Pentecost, we're told that there are 3,000 who come to faith. After the healing of the lame man outside of the temple gate, we're told that 5,000 come to faith. Philip's work previously in Samaria led to large numbers of people believing in Jesus, the Holy Spirit being imparted to them, and the capital city of Samaria filled with joy. We've seen a lot of large-scale conversions. But now we see one. It's as if the process of conversion is now put under a microscope. And we're seeing an instance of one single person coming to faith. It's interesting to to ponder this. Before we've seen just these massive events, but here we see one conversion. That God has been working in his heart. That this man is searching the scriptures. He humbly admits his need. He is pointed to Jesus in the scriptures. His eyes are opened and he longs to be baptized. We see up close what a conversion looks like. There's also something else. So we're taught something about conversion. We're also taught something about our God. And we're taught that one person is just as valuable in God's eyes as the many. We're told here that God pulls Philip away from this massive event that is taking place in Samaria, where you have thousands of people coming to faith. Philip is pulled away and told to go into the middle of nowhere to go get this one. That is a wonderful thought. 
that our God is after the one. It's this picture that Jesus gives of the shepherd leaving the 99 to go after the one. It's comforting. I've seen myself as that one before. That one that he still pursues and and brings back. And what a comfort it is that God will have every last one of his people. He's not going to get a majority of them and then leave a few. No, every last one of his children. Every last elect is going to be counted. And so he goes after the one. We see this beginning in verse 26. There's an angel of the Lord who comes to Philip and tells him to get going. Remember, God is the one setting all this up. He uses one of his servants, an angel, to pull Philip out of Samaria, to call him away from this massive revival, to go and minister to this one out in the desert. You know, one of the most glorious truths of Scripture that I probably think about the least is the role of these servants of God, these angels and how they work and serve Him. Hebrews 1.14 says that angels are ministering spirits who are sent out for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Something I'm completely oblivious to, but what a wonderful reminder it is. God uses one of these servants to send Philip. And these instructions that are given are to rise up and go toward the south on a road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now that probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you. Didn't mean a whole lot to me until I dug into some books. And I learned more about this road and about Gaza. Number one, Gaza's... Not a great area. It's Philistine territory. And so um, it would kind of have those same connotations of Samaria. It's not friendly territory. But even more than that, the city of Gaza had been completely destroyed by a man named Alexander the Great. He had leveled the city, completely destroyed it. And in the years after, there was a newer road that had been constructed that went south from Jerusalem. But it went to a different place. And this road that went to Gaza was out of use and had fallen into disrepair. No one used it. It'd be like having two options where you could have the nice brand new interstate, which was a straight shot, or the old abandoned highway. And God sends Philip down this old abandoned highway because there is someone there who needs to hear from the Lord. So that's the route. And you can just imagine Philip thinking, why are you pulling me out of this action in Samaria? Is, is there not anyone else you can send? Is there not anyone in Jerusalem who is not occupied? I'm kind of busy right now. There's some good things happening in Samaria. Why would you pull me out? And why would you send me down this abandoned road? Why not, why not the main road? Why not the traveled road? I would see many more people. And there are going to be so many times in my life and your life when we face a similar thing and we ask, Lord, this does not make sense. Why would you do this? Why would you send me here? Why would you take this 
person away. And we're reminded of his words that my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. And in this life, we may never understand why he calls us to do the things that he does. But we're still to be obedient and go. And that's what Philip does. We see Philip went. He goes. And there's, it's just interesting comparing Philip with Jonah. Put them side by side. And Jonah's just reluctance to go anywhere. But Philip... He's so sensitive to the Spirit, he answers and goes. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, wants to encourage the church, and he says, quote, There are all kinds of chance meetings ready to take place in a life that is sensitive and obedient to God's leading. Now, he has chance in quotation marks because as Presbyterians, we don't believe in chance. We don't believe in luck. We don't believe in coincidence. And that if we, like Philip, would be sensitive and obedient to our God's leading, there are all kind of divine appointments waiting for us. Philip answers the call. He goes... And then we're introduced to the target of this mission. We're introduced to the one that God brought Philip all this way for. In verse 26, we're told there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. So I think I mentioned earlier, Ethiopia is, was south of Egypt, what would be modern-day Sudan, There were cities along the Nile that made up this kingdom. And there's a famous person in church history you may remember from this area. Remember the queen of Sheba? That queen who will come and visit King Solomon and be so impressed with him. She was from this area. So this is a man from Ethiopia. He's obviously a Gentile. He's not a Jew or even a half-Jew like the Samaritans. He is, he's an African, a Gentile. That's his ethnicity. But then we also see a description of his person. He was a eunuch. He was a castrated man. And most of the time this was a practice done to those who were in close proximity to queens and princesses and harems. It's a lot easier for a king or a prince to trust a eunuch. It's a lot easier for them to be okay with these men guarding the harem. If you're castrated, you cannot engage in sexual activity. Now, if you kids want any more details about a eunuch, feel free to ask your parents. That's all I'm going to say this morning. But as a eunuch... It was very common for them to rise to positions of prominence. They had the ear of the royals. They had pull. They had influence. And we see that this man obviously did. He was an important official to the queen of the Ethiopians. He was in charge of all her treasure. 
And we're told that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, why would he do that? Why would he come to Jerusalem? And you have to think, there had to be some type of Jewish influence. Maybe there was some lingering influence from the Queen of Sheba visiting Solomon. And maybe Solomon gifted her a copy of the first five books of Moses. And those went back with her. And maybe that made some impact on this this kingdom. And this man is going through all those questions we all have about the meaning of life and God, and, and he's searching different religious documents, and he perhaps stumbles upon the five books of Moses, and he says, I want to go to Jerusalem and worship that God. I don't know for sure, but he has these questions. He, he has this God-shaped hole that he wished to fill, and so he's like, I'm going to try Jerusalem. Well, what did he encounter in Jerusalem? Again, I'm going to do some assuming here, but I'm pretty confident in these assumptions. My guess is that this worship experience in Jerusalem was a massive, heartbreaking disappointment. Maybe he knew before, but he definitely found out once he got there that as a Gentile, he was not allowed in the temple. Can you imagine making this whole trip to go and worship the God of Israel? And then you get there and you aren't even allowed in his temple. And, and, and not only that, but also being, being a eunuch, you are not allowed to go near the temple. I mean, maybe if he's just a Gentile, he could have gone to the court of the Gentiles and that would have been... Loud and it would have been noisy and very distracting. But I'm not even sure as a Gentile he could have, or as a eunuch, he could have even gotten that far. If you look back in Deuteronomy 23, there's this regulation given that castrated men were not permitted to enter the assembly of the Lord. They were not regarded as full citizens. We might have questions there. Questions for our God. Why would that be? We remember that God required a certain degree of physical perfection among his people. For the same reason that a deformed or blemished sheep was unfit for sacrifice. So he would not have been allowed in the temple. But then where would he have gone? Probably one of the synagogues. And what was he likely to find in those synagogues? Well, if he'd gone to the synagogue of the freedmen, he would have found the same crowd that murdered Stephen. Can you imagine making this big trip and walking into a synagogue and it's full of all the people that murdered Stephen? That was one option. Synagogues were also obsessed with the law. We see Jesus take this on over and over and over again. This Practice of adding regulation on top of regulation on top of regulation. The same people who will chastise Jesus for allowing his disciples to pick grain on the Sabbath. The same people who will chastise Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath. He may have found a synagogue full of those types of people obsessed with the law. He also would have found... Some very 
political synagogues. You know, there was also, there was, there was always this desire to, we have to protect the state. We have to protect the nation of Israel. Who do we need to make a deal with? Who do we need to engage in politics with to ensure our survival? And so there was an obsession with politics. All for the motivation of, hey, we have to protect our people and our our nation. Those are just a few of the options he could have encountered. It makes you wonder if someone visits our church... Let's say God has been working in them and he's been drawing them and wooing them and they're hungry and they have questions and they want community and they visit this church on North Harper Road. What are they going to find? Now, I think you are a very gracious and a very loving congregation but this, we never have a pass here. This is a question we should always be asking of ourselves. What are people going to find here? Are they going to find warm, joyous hearts transformed by the gospel? Or might they leave heartbroken and disappointed? Now, there are, there are different pe- reasons people might leave heartbroken and disappointed. Maybe they're heartbroken and disappointed because of our carpet we have or that we don't have the programming that they want so badly. But I pray that they would never leave because they did not feel and sense the warmth and the joy of the gospel. He leaves this worship experience frustrated, answerless, discouraged. But in God's providence, at some point, he purchases a scroll of Isaiah. Now, this would have been very expensive. All of these were hand-copied. Remember, there were no brother printers. There were no printing presses. All of this was hand-copied. So it would have been expensive. But hey, I mean, he's over the the queen's treasury. So, I mean, just write a check. He gets this copy of Isaiah, and we're told, of all places, he just so happens to be reading Isaiah 53 at the moment Philip arrives. This is the reason Philip was pulled from Samaria, to intervene in this moment. We see in verse 29, the Spirit says to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him, and hearing him reading Isaiah... Ask, do you understand what you're reading? So this man is reading Isaiah out loud. Philip hears him, says, this is Isaiah 53, and says, do you understand what you're reading? And I love the humility of this man. He's important. He's wealthy. He's riding in a chariot. He's got his entourage surrounding him. You know, it'd be like stopping at a rest stop and there being a foreign official or foreign diplomat, and he's got his convoy of black suburbans. And then this random man goes up and asks, hey, uh, do you understand that fancy, expensive, handwritten scroll you're reading? How many of us would say, "Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty familiar with Isaiah. 
this man doesn't lie. He doesn't lie. The, the humility of this man. He says, how can I unless someone guides me? He goes on to ask, who is this suffering servant? Is it Isaiah? Or is it someone else? And he invites Philip up to come join him and sit in the chariot. We're told Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Think about that main point again. This man is seeking God because God was seeking him. How else do we explain this? Philip is pulled away from a massive revival. He's told to go to a deserted road that leads to nowhere in the middle of the desert. And there is is a man who just so happens to be there and he's open to hear the truths of God and he made this whole journey to worship in the first place and he's reading Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 53. This ain't coincidence, folks. God is going ahead. He is preparing the way. And he is drawing this Ethiopian to faith in his son. And we're told that Philip opens his mouth. And beginning in Isaiah 53, he tells the good news about Jesus. Now, just so you know, when this man had this scroll, there weren't the chapter numbers and the verse numbers. Those would be added later. And so if you want the full context of this passage in your Bibles, you'd have to turn back to Isaiah 52, 13. That's where it begins. That's where Philip starts, and he he says, this man, this servant is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is is one with God the Father. He He is the Son of God. Through Him, all things were made. He's high and lifted up and exalted, and yet, for His people, for their sake, Jesus laid aside His divine kingly rights and privileges to do the will of His Father, to take on the form of a servant, to come and serve, not to be served. That's who this suffering servant is. And He came to His own people, and His own people did not receive Him. They despised Him, and they rejected Him, and when they looked at Him, they saw nothing majestic, Nothing beautiful that would draw them to him. Rather, they turned on him and they oppressed him and they afflicted him. He was taken away in judgment to die and yet he never opened his mouth and protested like a silent sheep being sheared was our Lord Jesus. He did not curse God. He did not curse man. There was no deceit in his mouth. He would die. He would stand in the place of his bride and be a sacrifice on her behalf. He would be pierced for our transgressions in his side and in his wrists and his feet. He would be crushed under the the wrath of Almighty God. And he did all of this because we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have gone our own way. But this this chastisement that he endured. This, these wounds brought us peace and healing and forgiveness. And this was the Father's will. It was the will 
that he would be crushed so that many would be accounted righteous. He would have worked his way through Isaiah 53. And this eunuch may have said, well, that's great for God's people, but I'm an Ethiopian. I'm a Gentile. Philip could have said, scroll back in your copy to Isaiah 11. And you'll read these words. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush. What's Cush? Cush is another name for Ethiopia. So you'd say the Lord will extend his hand to recover a remnant of his people in these different countries, including yours. Brother, you are included here. This shoot from the stump of Jesse in Isaiah 53, it's the same person who is gathering up his people. And his spirit will rest on them. Maybe the man said, well, that's nice for all the other Ethiopians, but I'm a eunuch. I'm an outcast. I'm wealthy and I'm in a position of power, but I am I'm an other. Philip could just flip past Isaiah 53 to Isaiah 56. And say, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall never be cut off. Philip is saying, hear this, brother. Jesus Christ is the one spoken of in Isaiah 53. He was thinking of your people, and he's thinking of you. And he's inviting all of the broken, all of the disenfranchised, all of the outsiders into his kingdom. And you may not have sons or daughters, but he promises, I will freely give you something even better. An everlasting name that will endure forever. What's the Ethiopian's reaction to all this? When he comes to faith, the chariot is rolling along. It passes some type of oasis. The Ethiopian sees this and he says, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Obviously, at some point, Philip had talked about baptism and believing and repenting and then coming and being baptized. The Ethiopian remembers this and he says, what prevents me from being baptized? And the answer is nothing. He'd come to faith. He believed in the work of Jesus on his behalf. He believed in the promises of God. He's filled with the joy of the Spirit. And then in verse 39, he's baptized right there on the spot. He wants to make a public profession that the blood of Christ mentioned in Isaiah 53 had covered his sins. He found the answer. Now, when reading through this, some of you 
may have noticed verse 37 is missing. Some of you accountant types may have noticed that. In my Bible and possibly in yours, there's a footnote at the bottom that gives the reason for this. Now, if you're in a King James or a New King James, I think it's probably there. But the reason it's a footnote and not included in my Bible is because this is one of those disputed texts in the Bible. The the actual verse, verse 37, is this. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, the reason this is not included in my Bible is because when scholars look at the earliest manuscripts of the book of Acts, this verse is not there. It's not there. And so it is believed that over the years, a copyist who was rewriting this added it in. Maybe this was the baptismal formula in their early church that was commonly used or some words that were said surrounding baptism, and so a copyist wanted to add it in, and so it was added. But it's not there in my Bible because it's not in the earliest of manuscripts. Now, this should give you incredible confidence in the Word of God that we are so nitpicky about what gets in. And listen, there is no other book with the amount of Manuscripts and original sources as the Bible has. No other book. So you should have a confidence here in the source that your English Bible is a translation of. There's no other book in history that is anchored in evidence as the Bible is. So that's why 37 is not there. Then in verse 39, the unit comes up out of the water. We're told that the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more, but the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. This image of the Spirit of the Lord carrying Philip away. We're going to end by talking about Philip. Philip is carried away. And I did a study on this word, and it means to snatch or to take by force. When Jesus talks about this strong man who is bound and he takes by force the things from his house, it's the same word. When Jesus in John 10 is speaking about his sheep and he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's the same word as used here. The Spirit snatches Philip and carries him away. But Philip found himself at Azotus and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So he's made a big U. Jerusalem, up to Samaria, down to Gaza, then back up the coast. There's something interesting. This is the last time we see Philip until Acts chapter 21. Twenty years later. We'll see him in Acts Chapter 21, the Apostle Paul comes to Caesarea and he stays in the house of Philip the Evangelist. Now just consider this. You have this man who is a deacon in the church caring for the Greek widows and then he winds up in Samaria and he's used in a tremendous way to ignite this massive awakening in Samaria. And then he's 
brought on this pinpoint rescue mission to meet the Ethiopian in the desert, to convert him and send the first convert back to Africa. And then everything goes silent. We don't hear from Philip anymore. The spotlight moves from Philip to a man named Saul. The camera changes directions. And Philip completely disappears from sight. In Acts 21, it's just Paul stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist. And by the way, he had four daughters who were prophetesses. There's a lesson for us here. That it's not about us. It's not about Philip. It is about the Lord Jesus and his gospel going forth. That's what this is all about. Philip is an instrument that is used for a season. And by the way, that, that use, that divine use doesn't end. He remains faithful. He just remains faithful out of sight. He remains obedient. He remains faithful as evidenced in his four daughters and their love they have for the Lord. There's a lesson for us here. A lesson of humility and that we are not the spotlight and it's not all about us. It is about him. And he may use us in some brilliant, um, loud, public way for a season. And then it might feel like the spotlight is off of us on someone else. But us being in the spotlight is not the point. And we're to remain faithful. Because God is at work. He is preparing people. He might be undoing people, causing unease so that they would be ripe for a conversation with you. I pray that the Lord would give us a soft heart to respond to that calling and a love for people that we would answer and joyfully go with them and give them the gospel of grace. Let's pray together. Father God, may it be so. Change us. Increase our love for you. Increase our love for your people. Turn our eyes from ourself and focus them outwards on others and upwards onto you. Father, you are the point. You are the blessing. You are the treasure. May we always be those whether we're in the spotlight or not, who point to you as the answer. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.